Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, wormhole hunters. It's time to put your fanciful dreams aside and settle in for a dose of reality. The reality of the future. And when I say that, I mean it's time for some tech talking. And when I say tech talking, I mean the best sort of tech talking there is. And that's tech talking with Matthew Dickerson. When you know you've got that, you know you've got tech talking straight from Matthew Dickerson. You know it's going to be good. And here he is. Without him, the show would be a tasteless, disappointing, too much water in your cordial semi-tech talk. Welcome, Matthew Dickerson. Oh, without me, it'd be a husky voice version. You sound yeah, like you've been uh, celebrating. A bit fluey, <laughs> um, fluey this right. morning. Um, yeah, it was a, a celebration-induced flu. Right, we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> so this week I've had a really interesting conversation with a company that's setting up a hydrogen production plant. Now, it's interesting. If you went and just used coal burnt, power to produce some hydrogen, it would be a terrible process, I would imagine, because you're creating so much carbon dioxide, so many greenhouse gases to create the electricity to then create the hydrogen that it doesn't seem like it would make much sense. But this particular plant is going to be set up around some other renewables, some wind and some solar. Their logic is that when there's excess wind or excess solar or both, you can store some of that excess in a battery, so that's fine, and then you can bring that back into the grid when it's needed. So, oh, it's night time, no sun shining, lucky we've got that battery there, we've been putting some extra power into, we can now use that to put that into the grid. So that makes sense, and the battery, the conversion, or what you lose by putting power into a battery and then taking it out, is not too bad, the efficiencies are okay. The interesting part about hydrogen is that if the only thing you're going to do was, let's make some hydrogen, while we've got excess power, mm. oh, now we need some power, let's burn. And when I say burn, in inverted commas, burn, because you're burning hydrogen, basically you end up with water. Yeah, giving it a spark and, um, and connecting hydrogen to uh, oxygen, yeah. Yeah, so your basically byproduct is water, which doesn't sound too bad, it sounds better than carbon dioxide. But if you do that, and if that's the only reason for doing it, the efficiency is pretty bad. And that's the interesting argument. Some people are saying hydrogen Waste of time. Why build a hydrogen plant? Complete waste of time because you've just got that inefficiency in creating the hydrogen in the first place, then burning the hydrogen. You lose so much in that process. It's all a complete waste of time. I could be wrong, but I understand that a lot of places that have got hydrogen have got some other form of um, of uh, energy supply, like geothermal power. Places like Iceland and whatnot um, produce a lot of hydrogen because they've got all that um, energy they're tapping from the earth. Um, so, and I think that's the secret is having enough energy or excess energy to do it. And I think the real logic here with this one is there's a couple of parts to it that I find interesting. I, I haven't done enough research, and I do apologise to our listeners for this part, I haven't done enough research to find out what the inefficiencies are in taking renewable power, using that to create hydrogen, and then using that hydrogen to basically burn it to then create electricity again in terms of just the difference there as compared to taking the renewable and just using the electricity in the first place. So I don't know the inefficiencies there. I do need to do that research. But the interesting part is that one of the challenges that we will have is storing power. So batteries, fine. We can store power in batteries to a certain extent, but batteries get quite expensive when you need to build them bigger and bigger. With hydrogen, it is like a fossil fuel in that you can have tanks of hydrogen. You can store it in those tanks. And so you're not having to have this huge battery, for example, to store this extra power. Sure, tanks can be large, 
but there's a fair bit of energy in hydrogen. So mm. the energy density is pretty good. So you could have a similar-sized volume of battery compared to hydrogen, and again, I haven't done the research on this, but I imagine you'd have more energy in that same equivalent space of hydrogen. So that's first part. You can store a fair bit of that power. Mm. Second part is there are some processes at the moment that burn gas. So there are some things where they're trying to create high temperatures. So it's not necessarily just for electricity. It's very high temperatures. So you think of places that do smelting, they need some pretty high temperatures, aluminium, for example. So with hydrogen... At the moment, they're doing a shandy, if you if you want to use that very, <laughs> very simple expression. They're basically doing a mix of around about 75% natural gas, 25% hydrogen. So you're still burning natural gas. You're at least reducing the amount you burn. The idea is to keep going down that path to get to the point where they'll burn 100% hydrogen eventually. They'll have to make some changes to their equipment as they go forward, but at least they can still burn that and actually mm. produce high temperatures with that. But it's also about transportability putting hydrogen in a tank and transporting around, again, seems better than batteries, putting a big battery somewhere. And I think the transport industry is going to be onto this. So when you see trucks that drive from one side of Australia to the other, 4,000 plus kilometres, then having batteries in terms of having those trucks that are electric trucks, that becomes very problematic to have batteries that you do swap overs or charge times. Hydrogen can be very similar to fuel. Again, there's some people out there that say you just have to store that hydrogen at too high a pressure and the containers you put it in need to be extremely solid containers because hydrogen atoms are small. If you remember the old periodic table, well, you remember the periodic table. For our listeners, if you think of the periodic table, it starts off with hydrogen. It's the smallest atom. So you need to have a container that's got a very tight structure and obviously very thick structure to contain that hydrogen. So you've got some problems there. Some people say, forget about hydrogen. It's not going to happen. Even some car manufacturers that talk about hydrogen instead of electric vehicles, some people are saying that's all a dream, a fantasy. But there are organisations out there, and this one that I talked to in particular, that are obviously going down that path in actually planning hydrogen plants, Mm. hydrogen production plants. So there must be some value there in it. You're not going to go and invest all the money you're going to invest to build a hydrogen plant, hydrogen production plant, without going, well, we know we've got someone to sell it to or some useful purpose to put this hydrogen to. It's another piece of the puzzle in our long-term climate solution challenge. Exactly right, yeah. And and it's an idea there that... um, while people won't entertain it and say, no, you can't do it, there's always going to be those people. Um, but then there's always going to those be those people who've got that little bit of curiosity to think, well, what if we just did this? Yeah. Could that improve the situation? Yep. And that has been what has driven us throughout history. Exactly right. Curiosity, isn't it? It didn't kill the cat. Curiosity Apparently solved the world's problems. flying was going to be impossible as well. Yeah, and my brother thought, well, there's a challenge. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. right. <laughs> anyway, it's interesting. We'll see what comes of hydrogen. It's been talked about, but we're yet to see some really definitive action come out of it. But yeah. who knows? This is the sort of thing that we're talking about. And as the world's changing, and as coal-fired power plants are being shut down, then we've got to come up with solutions. And this is yeah. just another one of them. Yeah, very, very good. Well, we should get started on our um, our nine stories for the day. Sure. We've got great news. The world's fastest laundry folding robot has set a new record. And you can sense the anticipation from domestic engineers the world over, all thinking the same thing. There are robots that fold laundry? Where can I get one? Matt, where can we get one? Well, you probably don't want to get one yet. All right, just okay. a tad 
rich at the moment, but it's it's very like hydrogen technology. technology. It's not quite there yet. Yeah, I mean, it's there if you've got fifty eight grand spare. Oh, okay, that's a lot of folding. That's a lot of that's, people I could pay that's to fold. People who really, really hate folding. That's laundry. right. I really want to hate it with a passion. <laughs> But it's not even that good yet. So when you say the world's fastest, you're correct. Given the fact that it just broke the record of the previous fastest, which could do six garments an hour. <laughs> now, when I was reading this story, when I saw six garments, I was thinking a minute, a second, six garments an hour. So that wasn't great. This one's improved quite dramatically. It can take randomly disheveled products dropped in a pile and it can fold those at the rate of about 40 per hour. So still not mind-blowing, still not as good so as humans. So is this robot like watching um, videos on YouTube and stuff <laughs> while they're doing it too? Right. They're very distracted <laughs> by social media. Netflix, that's right. <laughs> I'll get around to that folding in a bit. It's a really good part of the show. So no, they're not. <laughs> they're doing their job very slowly, very fastidiously, and very frustratingly, I watched a video of them, and it's, it's actually quite frustrating because <laughs> we're pretty clever as humans. We can work out all sorts of things by ourselves. Which way the T-shirt should be held up first. and All that sort of stuff. So what it does is it takes one article of clothing off a pile, moves it over to a relatively flat bench. Then it takes a photo or an, an, a snapshot of it, tries to work out some corners. So then you see two little arms with two little pincers on them, come down and pick up what it thinks of the corners, shakes it a bit, and then drops it again. Then another image. Oh, it's not quite right yet. I'll go for those other two corners there. So it's trying to work out two corners to start with so I can start the folding process. Then it finally gets there. It might take two or three goes to get that. Then it finally gets there. That it's got a relatively flat garment. Then you can see it go down. It's got that snapshot of it. Folds one side over. Stops. Takes another snapshot. Goes back. Folds another side <laughs> of it. Takes another snapshot. But when you get the folded product, if my kids folded t-shirts like this robot followed them and, and gave them to my wife, my wife would say to the kids, go back and do it again, because <laughs> it's not quite perfect. So if you're someone who likes your stuff uh, folded, absolutely just so. Well, that's why you've got a robot, isn't it? To do it perfectly. Well, you'd think so. Robots are really good at doing the same repetitive task over and over very accurately. So, mm. for example, doing a weld on a car in a manufacturing process. Mm. It's absolutely spot on. A human is never going to weld that good that perfectly, that consistently, every single time, and not want to go out and have a coffee break or watch Netflix. <laughs> this robot, mm, not quite. It's getting there, and researchers are doing things. They're solving the big problems of the world, hydrogen plants or ro folding robots or T-shirt folding robots, but it will take all of your clothing. It will fold shirts, T-shirts, pants, underwear, a whole range of things it can fold. Just don't expect it to do them perfectly. Don't expect them to do them fast. But you can sit down and do nothing while the robot is folding away. I'm keen to get one, but not at 58 grand and not <laughs> while they're at the standard they're at yet. So I'm giving it two years before I get one of these. So hold on, folks. It'll come, but give it a bit more time. I used to think that toothbrush commercials were um, a bit hilarious on TV back in the 80s. I was a junior TV junkie when the first variants of the standard rectangular brush on a stick came out. Remember the Reach model with its bent neck? It was revolutionary. And then they tapered the brush head a year or two later, and it was, it was something else completely different. It was exciting. And then they started doing fancy things with the bristle patterns. To the average punter, there had to be a limit to how far toothbrush technology could go, and they were right. And so toothbrush ads went quiet for about 20 years or so. 
But we are entering a renaissance of toothbrush technology again, folks. Thank you very much. The engineers at the Oral-B Labs have come out with a lecky toothbrush that's smarter than the operator, Matt. And I'm excited again. Bring it on. Actually, my favourite ad was the old flip-top head. The flip-top head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just whatever I needed. So there are some interesting toothbrushes out there. The electronic toothbrushes started way back in 1954. Who knew Mm. that in 1954 people were thinking about electric toothbrushes? I'm imagining something with a big, long extension cord. (laughs) (laughs) And and away you go, stand back. (laughs) Don't get a little short wire. That's right, in the actual toothbrush. So that was back in Switzerland, that was invented. And there's been a whole range of different ones since then. The latest one, though, and this is where it's the things in the world need to have this as an important part of the design process. The latest one has got Bluetooth because everything goes mm. better with Bluetooth. Yeah, it hasn't got Bluetooth, I don't want to know about it. Exactly right. But what's the point of Bluetooth on a toothbrush, you may <laughs> ask, and that would be quite a sensible question. Yeah, that's right. What it does is it hooks up to your phone with an app so it will give you instructions and direct feedback on your brushing technique in addition to obviously as well. And nag you, that's right. So it's like your dentist at home. Your dentist <laughs> says, James, have you been brushing for two minutes every time you kind of look sheepishly at the floor and shuffle your feet around and a go, quick yes. Two minutes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Not a slow two minutes, a quick two minutes, that's right. So your dentist says, brush for two minutes. I know you've been doing that. And you go home and the next time you do it, you do it for two minutes. But two minutes is a long time. It is a long time. Just to sit there and brush your teeth. It's Just a like long time. Singing happy birthday while you wash your hands, that's a long time as well. Exactly right. (laughs) So this toothbrush will say, first of all, two minutes. But it goes more than that. It will say two minutes maybe if you've done a good enough job. It actually senses how you're brushing, gives you feedback on your smartphone to say you're brushing too fast, you're brushing too slow, you're not reaching all the different parts. And it actually has an image of your upper and lower teeth and it will show you on that image the bits of your teeth you haven't gotten to properly. And most people, when I read some reviews on it, most people said it's difficult to get the green tick from the app in anything less than three minutes. You've really got to be focused on getting everywhere and getting every little nook and cranny as you go around your mouth. At the end of it all, you should have two wonderful rows of sparkly clean teeth and it gives you a sparkly clean image on the screen when you've actually done your job properly. And does it send a message to your dentist to dob on you if you're not doing it? Well, well, (laughs) you should say that. I don't know. (laughs) It tracks all the times you've cleaned your teeth. It tracks your rating in terms of how good your teeth cleaning was, how long you brushed it for. So the next time you go to your dentist and he says, James, have you, well, funny you've asked that, sir. (laughs) Here's my record, here's my log of Ah. my teeth brushing that you can look at and inspect. (laughs) Exactly right, it's evidence. So you get back on your little bike there and (laughs) off you go because I've got the evidence to show that I've been doing it there. (laughs) You may have had me in the past. (laughs) He still looks at your teeth and goes, well, they look rotten, so (laughs) they're they're all coming out. Yeah, that's right. Oh, well, I I have been drinking soft drinks every every time in between. So So the, the cost of these, and they're a bit expensive, but then I would say what, price your teeth because we after we lose our baby tooth we've got one set to last mm. say a long time so we probably should look after them a while four hundred dollars for the series five in this oral b io series and three hundred dollars for the series four so and again the, the series five just has a few more sensors on there to try and make sure you're getting around every part of your mouth so it does sound expensive to me but again as i say what price your teeth how much do you pay when you go to the dentist a lot how much do you pay if you've got to get a filling 
all those sort of things mm. if you've got to get false teeth later on in life. So maybe $400 isn't such a bad investment. There, are, there is a bit of competition out there, though. We've seen a range of different ones. Remember we've talked before about the one that looks like a mouth guard. You put it in your mouth and it does the brushing for you. You just put it in the mouth and away you go. Sit yeah. back and smile, I suppose, or do something for the couple of minutes while it goes for it. So no action required from the human in that particular scenario. It's a bit of a competition out there, which is a good thing. And hopefully at the end of all that, we'll do some dentists out of their jobs. <laughs> Well, folks, it's scam time again. A new mes- text message scam known as pig butchering is circulating and one unlucky sod has been ripped off to the tune of 1.6 big ones. Listen up to Matt, who will give you the tips on how not to be swindled to the value of decent house prices in the suburbs. We've actually gone fairly well recently. I don't think I've had many scam stories lately, which means the prevalence of scams has been dropping a little bit, but there's mm. always the competition so out there. Scams, they've just been hacking into Optus and that's Medibank right, and right, right, just right. going larger get, scale. That's right. Forget about scamming uh, individuals. Sick of texting people. <laughs> I'm going to go and just hack big industry. Go big or go home. <laughs> and this one has actually picked up 2,000 victims so far, so there are yeah. still around, a few around, and the average loss for each of those 2,000 has been $300,000. Wow. Now, I'll get to the reason it's called pig butchery in a moment, but the process here is a very complicated, devious, long-term plan by the scammers. It's not just a simple send a text out, hey, you've won lotto, hey, you owe money to the tax office, whatever, click on this link, and then you get sucked in. It's a really simple process. And some of these scammers that have been caught have been interviewed and they've told the investigators, the FBI, whoever it might be, that these scamming organisations, remember we've talked about that before, that they're not just a little kid sitting in their basement in a darkened room. Mm. These are professional, large-scale organisations. They employ multiple psychologists because what they want to do is get ways that you are going to be tricked. And this one is a classic. They send an email or a text, usually a text, to you and say, hi, and they might have your name because they might have picked up that data from, say, an Optus data breach, or they may not have your name, but say it might just say, hey, what time are we meeting at the pub tonight? And you get a text message from a number you don't know that says that, and your first reaction is, oh, well, they've got the wrong number. But you're a nice person, James. You might be polite enough to go back to that person and say, oh, sorry, I think you've got the wrong number. Yeah, and this that's has happened to me on WhatsApp as uh, a shocker. So I've only I've only ever replied once. Right. And, and then, then I realised, hang on a second. <laughs> this is well, happening a bit frequently. And so I picked you right. I said you're a nice guy. And you've <laughs> replied back, wrong person, sorry. Which many people would do because someone thinks, oh, well, it's a bit embarrassing if they're thinking they're yeah. going to meet someone at the pub that night and they don't turn up. And so oh, I'll do the right thing. I'll just send back a message to say, I think you've got the wrong number. Mm. Then using all these little psychological tools, these scripts that have been written for them by psychologists, they might come back and say, oh, sorry, I was chasing blah, blah, blah. We were going to, and they're just trying to get a bit of extra information out of you. Mm. Then you come back because you're polite again and answer that, oh, no, this is where I am. Just a little conversation, then nothing. Then you might get another text the next day. Oh, wasn't that funny yesterday, that message I sent you incorrectly. And they're just using these little techniques to just start to befriend you in a very loose sense of the word. After about two months of this process, just little tidbits thrown out there, little snippets, then 
they get a little bit more serious in their conversation. Oh, yeah, I'm just about to do and jump on a flight. I've just been doing so well with my crypto investments lately. Oh, really? Yeah, I made $10 million in the last year. Wow, how did you do that? On it goes. Next uh. thing you know, they tell you about some great crypto site that you can invest in. Just throw 100 bucks in. Oh, what are, how am I going to do? $100? I'll give that a go. $100 goes in. You look at the investment the next day, it's gone up to $150. Wow, that was good. Why don't you put a bit more in? And off it goes. So uh, you just keep putting a bit more in until one day you put a bit more in and then the communication stops. And when they figure they've got everything they can out of you, then that's the end of the story and your money is gone, gone and gone. And obviously the places they're telling you about don't really exist. They're simply a site that they've set up to make it look like a crypto trading site. So <laughs> all the gains that you've supposedly had are not correct. Now, the pig butchering comes from the whole idea that a farmer might fatten up his pig before he mm. takes it to market. So he's feeding the pig, he's giving it more information, more food, more data in the case of texting. So just fattening it, fattening it, and then once he figures it's completely fat and ready to go, then basically takes it to the markets or takes it to the abattoirs. And that's exactly what happens. They're feeding you information. They're slowly just getting more and more ingrained in your life. And sometimes I suppose what they're looking for is someone that is nice and friendly and responds, and they might just happen to luck on someone that's a bit lonely. They might have lost a partner recently. They might have been a bit uh, restricted in their movements with COVID, so they're not associated with people We all just have much. moments of weakness, don't we? Oh, that's it. So it's another one to be careful of in terms of just everything that happens. And it, it actually makes me a bit sad about society because I feel like I'm doubting everyone yeah. that I get a message from. I doubt everything that comes. So when a legitimate request comes through or a legitimate opportunity in, in a business scenario... You might miss some of those because you're always on the lookout for people trying to do the wrong thing. So it actually, I don't like what it does to me as a person because everything you see, you're just thinking of the negative side of it yep. instead of the positive. Suspicious of everything now yeah. and um, yeah. So um, while I've said that now, be suspicious of that text message that comes in that's the wrong number. And be really careful if you send out a message organising to meet someone at the pub and you get nothing back. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Farming has entered the space age and has the potential to rip a load of CO2 from the atmosphere. And I'm not, not talking about just growing crops to recycle carbon from photosynthesis. There are no net gains to be had with that. Farmers are tapping into satellite imagery to maximise carbon sequestration into the soil. And it's all for the long-term good of the planet. Matt, what's this good news all about? Well, the interesting part is that the top metre of the world's soil, looking at the planet holds about three times the amount of carbon that's currently in our atmosphere. So it's a pretty good source that's of right. retaining carbon. Yeah. If we get it right and treat it right, then we can increase that number, and obviously that can be part of our long-term solution. Obviously producing less carbon dioxide is obviously part of our solution, but if we can take some that's there and start to get to the stage where we're maybe reversing climate change, that would be a great thing as well. Farmers can play a part in this. Now, there are potential programs out there for farmers where they can sell the ability for them to store carbon in their land. The really tricky part is how much carbon are they storing? How do you know how much carbon? Mm. Is it real? When I tick the box when I fly to say, I want to fly carbon neutral, so I'm happy to pay my $2 extra or whatever it might be, I didn't do it the first time I saw it. I went, oh, I don't know about that. I wonder if anything's actually being done. So I did a bit of research and I was quite happy with the process that the airlines undertook and quite happy with 
the auditing trail in there, so I started ticking the box. I was quite comfortable with that. But again, some people might say, yes, I've got some carbon credits from selling or paying money to a farmer to actually store some of my carbon or remove some of the carbon from the atmosphere. But did they really do it? How can Mm. I prove it? What we've got now is the point where satellite technology is good enough that it can actually give a definitive answer. Mm, definitive, is that the right word? Maybe not completely definitive. Yeah. A pretty good answer on how much carbon is actually being taken out of the atmosphere by a farm. So the, there's two parts to this. One is that the accuracy of satellites is getting better all the time. Yeah, One, LIDAR is an amazing technology. And I'm not quite sure if LIDAR is, um, is associated with this, but it's like radar except with light waves. Yeah, so I'm not sure on that one. It does look at, we're talking about photographs of electromagnetic radiation here, so it's actually getting some of that. So I'm not sure if that's exactly LIDAR or LIDAR slightly different to that, but it is using photographs at high res. When I say high res, it's getting to the stage where one pixel is about 10 metres. And you think, well, that's terrible. If one pixel is 10 metres, I'll take a photo of you and you'd just be a big blurry (laughs) blob. But when you're talking about a satellite at hundreds of kilometres above the Earth, and I don't think they're geostationary they're talking about here, I think these are the low Mm. Earth orbit satellites. When you're talking about that, having one pixel being 10 metres is pretty good. So then when you think about a farm, for example, and taking photographs of that farm, then you can see a bit more detail about what's happening. Then by analysing the multi-spectral satellite imagery, I like that word. <laughs> um, so when you, when you start to analyse that, you actually get an idea using the reflected light from, from the sun, obviously, the reflected light on the earth of how much carbon is in that soil. So here's the process. I go along, I get satellite imagery of my farm right now. So all the hectares of my farm, I say, here's my farm. And from that multi-spectral satellite imagery, I can say how much carbon is in my soil today. Then I go out to you and I say, I'll sell you the ability to store some of the carbon that you're producing as an industry, as an organisation, whatever it might be. And I'll charge you X dollars per tonne and I'll give you proof that we're putting it into the soil. So you pay some money, we come to an agreement, and then at the end of a period, six months, 12 months, whatever that period might be, I get the multi-spectral satellite imagery again and I say, look at that. I can now tell you that so many tonnes of carbon is now in my soil, put away for a long period of time and taken out of the atmosphere. You're happy to pay it because you know you're doing the right thing. You've satisfied maybe some government legislation around that as well. So you're doing the right thing legally, but also doing the right thing morally, and we're helping the planet overall. So it's just fantastic how good we're getting these satellites and what we can do with the satellites. And this is something that most people think of satellites. They think of photographs or they think of TV shows where you click on the button that says enhance image and suddenly a satellite image gives you a (laughs) number plate in perfect detail. But this is just another use of it using other areas of that electromagnetic spectrum that we're obviously so familiar with in so many areas of our lives. Yeah, amazing, amazing. And uh, what a fantastic direction um, to be taken in the future. When you're moving well over a million tonnes of boat and cargo across the water... You could imagine that the energy costs are fairly large, and you could also probably imagine that the time demands on deliveries are of a similar sort of magnitude, and all that extends to an enormous amount of emissions into the atmosphere. So any clever idea to move a bloody big boat across a bloody big ocean more efficiently is most probably going to be very welcome, especially when it's as cheap and easy as blowing bubbles under your hull. Matt, I was scanning your notes and it all seemed so simple and logical. Why haven't we been doing this like forever? It just sounds too simple, doesn't it? There's got to be some problem there. Maybe it's going to change. You can cut through the water if the water's less dense. Correct. 
So, um, so put a little gap there between the water and the hull, make it air, that sounds pretty good, and away you go. The problem we've got is that we've got 100,000 large ships in the world. Yeah. That's a fair few. It's a lot. They're moving a lot of people to a lesser extent now. Cruise ships probably is the main thing there. And cargo to a much higher extent around the world. We've got a problem, obviously, with climate change. Getting those ships converted over to another form of energy that doesn't produce carbon dioxide is going to be a challenge. Mm. We've talked before about some electric boats on some smaller routes, but Again, batteries are so heavy. We've talked about hydrogen. That may be a solution. On these longer trips, they'll probably leak a bit of that hydrogen out in their tanks that they're using to actually power that ship. If we can just make them more efficient, that might be part of the solution in the short term until we come up with some other solutions in the longer term. So this is the latest experiment they've been trying to basically get to that point because shipping accounts for 3% of all global emissions. So yeah. those 100,000 ships have got a bit to answer for. Yeah. Mm. Now, at this stage, we've got 78 large vessels in this first experiment that literally, as you said, blow bubbles as they go along. So they're blowing bubbles at the hull, and you have to think there's probably a bit of clever technology there to actually create the bubbles on the hull because you want the hull not to have holes in it mm. for obvious reasons. You don't yeah, really want, want water coming in. <laughs> Whoops, they stopped blowing bubbles. I wonder what's going to happen next. <laughs> so that's a bit of clever technology there, and it did look quite interesting when I looked at some videos of this, how they're doing that. But what the net effect of this is, they've said that just by fitting some of these air lubrication systems, they're calling it, you're seeing a 5% to 8% improvement on the efficiency, in other words, the drag on that ship, so you're using 5 to 8% less fuel. Now, that's good for the planet, but I imagine it's also good for the shipping companies because 5 to 8% less fuel, their number one cost is probably fuel. Number one running cost. The ship's probably a pretty big part of the cost of running that business, but the number one operational cost would be their fuel, I'd imagine. So take 5 to 8% of that, and that's going to make it better. When you then go to superhydrophobic coatings, I dare to use that word in a sentence <laughs> next week. <laughs> Wasn't that a song by Julie Andrews back in the... Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> when you add it with those coatings, so they're just a slipperier coating on the hull of the ship, put that on there and blow bubbles as well, you get to a 16% improvement in fuel efficiency. So we're getting there in terms of making some changes in the short term. And again, I think sometimes people dismiss the climate change angle of things and go, oh, whatever, we'll get around to solving that problem. I only care about me right now. And that, I can understand that slightly selfish approach sometimes, but if you can put something in front of someone that's a compelling reason to do it in the short term for their benefit, Mm. and it also benefits the planet long term, then you've got a winner. And when you say to a shipping company, I can reduce your fuel bill by 16%, and you're also helping the planet, they wouldn't hear you after the first part. (laughs) I'm going to reduce my fuel bill by 16%. I'm there. Well, that'd also be increasing their speeds too, wouldn't they? You'd have to think so, wouldn't you? If you're making it a bit slipperier, you can get from point A to point B quicker. Now, maybe part of the process of, say, for example, saving 16% is that at the same speed, compare this journey to that journey, one without, one with, 16% fuel saving. When you increase the speed, you're going to increase the drag even further. Mm. So you might make a decision to say, I'm going to increase my speed and forget about the fuel efficiency, or I'm going to take the fuel efficiency because the speed that I'm doing it at now is quite acceptable, getting into ports at the right time and all sorts of complicated processes, getting down Suez Canal or Panama Canal and getting in the line up there and all those sorts of logistics. I imagine if you went and suddenly said, 
some ships are going to go 16% faster, that might throw out some of those logistics. Yeah, probably would. Mm. But uh, I'm guessing that this technology will only probably work in the reasonably calm waters, yeah? Or I can't imagine this being, you know, in in large swells. Um, Yeah, I think whatever you've got that water in contact with the hull, which is obviously a boat Mm. floating along the water, I'd imagine that it mightn't be as effective if you had rough seas, but it's still got to make it reasonably slipperier, so that would yeah. still make sense okay. to me. Yeah, I mean, they, they are talking about the very large vessels. They're the ones they're installing this on, and probably because the cost of installation of it would be similar. It would be a little bit larger in a larger ship, but I imagine just all the systems you'd have to set up in terms of the pumping of the air, etc. there's a cost to that. So they are looking at the large vessels. The 78 I mentioned have already got it. Another 155 are being installed in the short term. So it's certainly something that's happening, and there's really only one firm in London that's focusing on this at the moment, but obviously we're really good at copying good ideas. So mm. once people see these statistics, then they'll probably go looking to see what they can do in their shipping company. Yeah, fantastic. I've been talking about the utopic solution to the energy crisis in science lessons for decades now. The idea is an old one but essentially an unobtainable one. The amount of energy that comes from fusing two hydrogen nuclei is absolutely enormous and wasteless. And with enough hydrogen, you can supply an entire planet the size of Earth with enough energy to keep it going for about 10 billion years. Imagine how much, or how very little I should say, you would need to power your house or your car or or even the neighbourhood. But managing the energy to get fusion happening And then trapping it to be useful is the golden egg and the impossible challenge. Or is it, Matt? Hmm, we're getting there. Maybe we're dreaming, but we are getting there. So let's talk a little bit about fission and fusion. Hmm. Most people think about nuclear reactions and don't really explore the differences there. The nuclear reactors, 437 nuclear power plants we've got across this planet Mm -hmm. that we know of. Maybe there's a few more hidden away somewhere there, but 437 we know of. They all use nuclear fission. Now, nuclear fission, of course, is where you take something like uranium and you split that off into two other isotopes, typically, of that. So that releases some energy. Happy days. That's what mm. we're after. And lots then, of energy, too. Lots yeah. of energy, that's right. And then you end up with some radioactive waste. So that's not good for a start. Plus, the other minor problem you get is that that reaction can get away from you. Mm. You call it. Nagasaki, call it Hiroshima, (laughs) those things can happen. But you've also got, obviously, things like Chernobyl or in Japan, obviously, similar thing happened back in about 2011. So where a nuclear reactor can start to melt down or as it used to be called the old China syndrome. Mm. So that's a bit of a problem. So with fission reactions, lots of energy, not a lot of raw material required, not a lot of uranium required to run a nuclear power plant, but that's what gets people scared. When you see those images of what can happen after a nuclear bomb mm. or after a nuclear reactor meltdown, people get a bit scared about nuclear. Now, in Australia, of course, it's illegal. The Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act of 1999, Section 140A, brackets B, the minister must not approve the construction or operation of a nuclear power plant. So it's set in legislation in this country. Legislation can be changed, of course. But it seems like there was obviously a big push from society to say, we don't want nuclear reactors in this country. It may be a great solution in the future. I'm not putting an opinion out there one way or the other. But at the moment, you can't do it. Mm. But fusion, if we can get fusion, and as you said, fusion is not too bad if you can get it right because things like the sun 
use fusion. And we're getting a byproduct of those two hydrogen atoms being squished together to one nuclear to one helium atom to basically get fusion running. Puts out lots of energy, of course, but how do you keep it running? And that's the challenge. Well, also, how do you get it going? Because you also need really high temperatures to get it started. Pressure and temperature, I think, are the two things that are absolutely needed in that process. Now, when you do get it going, the energy you release for an equivalent amount of raw material is about three or four times the amount you get out of fission. So mm. it sounds great. So we mm. say, not going to use a nuclear bomb because it doesn't run away, not going to give you radioactive waste. It's got some pretty good things, more energy produced. So it's got some pretty good things going for it for a start. Hydrogen. We've got a fairly good supply of hydrogen, mm. and if we had to, we could probably, I don't know if this would work in an energy equation, get some hydrogen out of water by a process using other energy. It probably would, because the amount of energy you're producing out of that oh, yeah, reaction sure. would be would be worth it. So effectively, and, and just to go back to get a little bit scientific there, when you're putting those four hydrogen atoms together to form one helium yeah. atom and energy you're reducing your mass by about 0.71, or sorry, you end up with about 0.71% of the original mass. Um, that's not right. No, no. no, that's right, sorry. 0.71% of the original mass, and then using Einstein's equals mc squared, you get a truckload of energy out of that. That's so right. So that's fantastic. Nine times 10 to the 16, and you've got a lot of energy. Yeah, that's right. So that's all pretty exciting. What we've gotten to, so that's all fantastic. So why aren't we doing it is the obvious question. The problem is, how do you get that pressure? How do you get that temperature? Now, there is, at the moment, as we speak, in the UK, the Joint European Taurus. Now, they've been able to get fusion reactions going for a very short period of time. In the reactor's core, it's 150 million degrees Celsius. That is hotter than the sun. It's the hottest place we know of in our solar system sitting there in the UK. You can toast some marshmallows on that. <laughs> that's right, even from a distance, I reckon. So that's great but just not getting them going for long enough. There's also a site in the US that's been able to do something similar where they've been able to get reactions going for a short period of time, but just not quite long enough to say we've got something that we can sustain. It's called the National Ignition Facility in the US, which is mm. appropriately named. Are we going to get there? Are we going to get to the point where we've got fusion? Because I think that would take a lot of the fear away. You're not getting radioactive waste. Mm. You're not getting that chance of someone using it for a nuclear bomb. You're not going to get a meltdown as such. You're going to get energy incredibly – it's not quite renewable because you're using up hydrogen, but, gee, we've got a lot of that. Yeah. And you're not using much to get an incredible amount of energy. So it sounds like it ticks a lot of boxes in our energy crisis. And it sounds like people haven't given up on the idea. And in, in 70 years, we haven't given up on the idea. And I think that's, yeah, that's very important. And I suppose we look at nature, as we so often do, and go, well, the sun can do it. Why can't we do it? <laughs> now, there's a few little problems there. But, but in essence, we know it's, it's possible. Thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we know it's possible. So why not? Why don't we keep working at it? And I think that's exactly what we're doing. Are we going to get there? That's the critical question. Mm -hmm. Are we going to get to that point? And I suspect if we do, okay, I'll go back one step. I think we will get there with it. But I think it's a decade away. Well, yeah. I think the word never is the most ridiculous word when you're talking about the future and technology. But, um, yeah. Science and technology. Yeah. You only have to look at the past, don't you? And the word never is a swear word. <laughs> Just when it looked like they were getting their act together, one leading car manufacturer that has been very slow to get into the EV market has pulled up and wants to reassess. They were poised at the starting line, ready to launch off the blocks and join the race, albeit well behind the pack. 
but they've decided to return to the change rooms and swap their shoes or something, I don't know. Matt, what is it going to take to bring Toyota into the 21st century? And I've got to be careful here. I have been a fan of Toyota. I love some of their lean manufacturing processes. I love what they did to the whole automotive industry across the world, getting to the stage where you can have a good, reliable car, a good, reliable price, and it just seemed to work and work. And we Mm. see cars out in our region where you've got land cruisers, for example, that are just so reliable and every farmer wants that good, reliable car to keep going. They've got a very good reputation. They have. They've got an excellent reputation. And we've seen it in the past where you've had a company, take Motorola and Nokia, for example, in the mobile phone industry, where they have been the market leader without any shadow of a doubt. Their sales were just so many more times than everyone else and they had a product that was just the market killer and they sat back a little bit, just blinked, just relaxed, just became a touch complacent. And in industry, in technology industries in particular, you cannot ever afford to just pause, just take Mm. a breath. You end up in the British Museum. You end up there, that's right. You end up as Kodak. You end up (laughs) as a company that just was a great company once, but no longer. And Toyota, I suspect, have been in that headspace, that they have been the number one manufacturer. V-Dub, of course, was so focused on knocking Toyota off their perch that they cheated the entire system Mm. to try and beat Toyota. And it was quite clear. Their board of directors, after the whole diesel gate process, actually, I hate how we put gate on the end of everything. (laughs) Watergate, it was the motel name. (laughs) Why do we put gate on everything? (laughs) And I've just done it. The whole scandal (laughs) with diesel around VW, when you saw some interviews with some of their executives, they were just so focused on beating Toyota. And Toyota was sitting back just plugging away, producing good cars at a good price, and meanwhile people are having to cheat to try and beat them. But I think, and this is my opinion only, James, I think they have become so complacent they have missed the boat. And other manufacturers, new manufacturers to the market, we see companies like Tesla, like Rivian. And there's all these companies in China right now, BYD. and Companies that we've never heard of that are popping up all over the place. There are huge market opportunities out there and new companies that are doing it differently. And that's the Mm. thing. I mean, you drive a Tesla, I drive a Tesla. Just things that you see they do and then you go, wow, that makes sense. Why don't other manufacturers do that? Other manufacturers are getting there. So some traditional manufacturers are starting to swap over now. When we see the likes of Mercedes-Benz and Volvo with their Polestar models, when you see Hyundai, you know, some big manufacturers out there, VW, VW have said mm. the way we'll beat Toyota next time is not by cheating, we'll beat them by having a superior EV strategy. Mm. Toyota, in the meantime, have sat back and they've said things like, oh, hydrogen's a go. We'll wait till hydrogen comes along. The hydrogen fuel cell will fix the problem. Or they have lobbied, actively lobbied the US government against some of the EV subsidies, saying the world's not ready for it yet, which you put in brackets, Toyota's not ready for it yet. Now, Toyota have said, finally, they've had lots of rhetoric around it. They've said, the actually one annoying campaign that I did see at one stage, I don't know if they're still doing it now, but with some of their hybrid cars, the first Toyota hybrid I had was back in about 2005. I had a Toyota Prius. Loved it. Loved the technology. That's 17 years ago. Hmm. We've moved on. Toyota's still there in those hybrid concepts. But I did see some side-on the side of a hybrid car one time on Toyota Hybrid from a car dealer and said, forget those plug-ins, this car charges itself. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if a car charged itself? And And people create energy. Create energy, apparently. They've solved the problem that people have been trying to solve for thousands of years, create energy out of nothing. We would always say that energy can just change forms. Mm. But of course, no, Toyota said you're creating energy out of nothing. Of course, you're not. That's wrong. I thought it was false advertising, but some people were falling for that. So they were saying, 
we're not going down that path of the silly EV things you've got to plug in. Our cars charge themselves. Now, they're using petrol to charge themselves effectively. So they're just changing forms of energy from petrol to electricity or storage in batteries as you brake towards slowing down. So that was a bit disappointing. But again, this is the sort of thing they were talking about, all these different excuses they're putting up. Finally, there's some reports coming out of Toyota now to say that they're really ready to hit the reset button. They're ready to say, oh, maybe we got it wrong. We won't mm. tell the public that, though. We're just going to reset everything and start with a whole new EV strategy. One of the problems they've got at the moment is their cars that they're bringing out, and there's a Lexus, an EV Lexus, that looks like quite a nice car. But it's their same model Lexus in a petrol version where they've essentially, and I'm being a bit flippant here, but they've essentially taken the petrol motor out and put in an electric motor, shoved a few batteries in it somewhere, and look at that, we've got an electric model now. They haven't really got an electric model. They've got a converted model, if you like. Mm. And other manufacturers that have started from the ground up, they can design it with a blank sheet of paper to start with yeah. and go from the ground up. But anyway, they've got some projects out now that they're staying to look at. They're staying to look at resetting everything in the Lexus range, in the Toyota range. They're starting to say our whole platform, they're doing some deals with Subaru, our whole platform maybe isn't quite right. If we're going to compete out there with these other guys, we're going to have to think a bit differently about it. And I would love it to happen. As much as I'm sounding like I'm a bit down on Toyota with all this, Toyota are an absolute market force if they say, we're going to go EV. If they, if someone in their boardroom says, I think the day has come, we need to take on this strategy. So if this reset happens, fantastic. Because what we want is competition out there. What mm. we want is every manufacturer producing an EV. That's right. We want companies out there saying, we want to do it better than anyone else. How can we do it? Oh, Toyota's in the game. Wow, we've got to do it better than them. So that'll be fantastic for us as consumers and for the planet overall. I hope it happens. I hope they get it right with their reset. I haven't seen the evidence yet with their reset, but he's hoping. Mm. Oh, another watch and see. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And it's ready to happen now. Starlink is coming to aviation. Very soon you'll be able to surf the net with the super fast download speeds as you cruise at an altitude of 14,000 metres over the Pacific Ocean. Make no mistake, Matt, we are living in the future, are we not? We are indeed. And I do sound a bit boring when I do tell people that I jump on long haul flights and pay my $20 or whatever it might be to be able to have internet connection the whole way. There was a time mm. when you jump on those flights and you didn't have that internet connection. You went, okay, I can take a break. Or the other thing I used to love doing was catching up on some emails. And then when you'd land, suddenly all these people you've been emailing would be bombarded with all these emails you'd spent 13 hours <laughs> doing because they're all piling up there in your outbox ready to go as soon as you landed. But they're not too bad if all you want to do is catch up on some emails. Mm. But if you want to stream or even just browse some stuff on the web, not so great. Typically, the whole plane has a speed of maybe as low as 10 megabits per second, but normally somewhere up around the 100 megabits per second. Now, 100 megabits per second for the entire plane isn't a lot. Not when you, you share it out, yeah. Not when you share it out. And most of them, some of them have got the ground to air connections, which is great when you're flying over land, but not so great when you're flying across the ocean because there's not many mobile phone towers out there. But some of them do connect to the ground and they're not too bad. They're a little bit better for the latency, a little bit more overall data connectivity. Most of them go to via satellite. You've got the latency, 36,000 kilometres above the earth, those uh, satellites sit out. So you've got the latency inherent with that, but then you've just got the lack of bandwidth. So 100 megs for the whole plane, not great. Starlink, on the other hand, two big advantages. 
for a start, they're low Earth orbit satellites. So they're talking about three to 500 kilometres above the Earth, not 36,000 mm. kilometres above the Earth. So straight away, latency is reduced. But then the amount of bandwidth you've got. So they're talking about giving in the initial stages 350 megabits per second to the entire plane, which again, is probably not enough. That's not even the speed of my home connection for little old me, but they're not too bad in terms of the fact that you're up in a plane and you're sharing that across the plane. The main reason the planes charge for the services is because they're trying to restrict how many. If they made it free for everyone on the plane, then you'd find that everyone would just get a terrible connection. So they're yeah. restricting it to a certain extent by basically charging for it. And I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm happy to pay my $20 or whatever it might be to have that connection. But 350 megabits per second, low latency, I think that's pretty impressive. And even the fact, just think about it for a second, the fact that you've got this plane flying at maybe 800, 900 kilometres an hour, and you've got a satellite going across the top. It might be rotating the Earth uh, 20, 30, 40 times a day. Mm. And those two things connecting together and getting a signal that's consistent enough to deliver 350 megabits per second, the stationary, the geostationary satellites are a bit easier, the ones that sit at 36,000 kilometres, because they're sitting above the same part of the Earth all the time. So your plane is just flying through that only at that one speed. But can you imagine satellites? And there'll be sometimes the satellite would be going in the opposite direction of your plane flight. So you've got these two things crossing and still getting a connection together yeah. at 50 megabits per second. So I find that pretty incredible. <laughs> but I haven't been on a plane with this yet. It's really only starting with some testing at the moment. It's not really full on until next year when we'll see a lot more planes rolling out with this. But Yeah, so not long to wait now though. No, mm. that's exactly right. And of course... We're talking about satellites, so over the ocean, over various parts of the Earth, it shouldn't make too much of a difference. Awesome, awesome. We've all got something to look forward to there. Now, you don't have to listen very hard to hear the vocal EV naysayers chiming in with their enormous gotcha moments. And you don't have to think very hard to buy into it either. Since buying a Tesla, I reckon the social media algorithms have been bombarding me with everything Mark Latham and Malcolm Roberts has to offer to explain why I'm actually destroying the planet and bringing down our economy. And they have really made me stop and think. But in the end, it's objective critical thinking that will continue to overcome this gotcha phenomenon. Matt, I've seen the highly dramatic minute-long dramatic video posts as I've already alluded to, and apparently producing EVs has a bigger carbon footprint than standard internal combustion cars when they're being produced. Correct. So that's the argument, and that's where the argument finishes when they say, look at those EVs. So there's dramatic music in the background and lots of visual <laughs> effects you've got to there understand. Is. And it doesn't go further to tell the full story. When you produce a car, there is still a lot of mining that's required because people, of course, say, oh, producing an EV is terrible. You've got to do all that mining. Well, how do you think a normal car gets made? Mm. There's a fair bit of mining involved in that. So here we have a car that's a petrol engine car or a fossil fuel car sitting beside an EV. And you look at those two and there's still the body of the car and the tyres and the suspension and all those common components. Instead of the engine, you've got a motor, an electric motor. And you look at that and you say, well, that electric motor is much smaller than that big engine. So there's less metal involved there. So you go, mm. well, so far I'm feeling pretty happy with myself buying an EV. Then the batteries. So there's a bit more in terms of the volume of what you've got to do to get the components of those batteries mined. So then you start to feel guilty for yourself or about yourself, about your purchase. But how guilty should you feel and what's the time when surely as you keep using that EV, as you go forward, then you're going to get to that point where you cross over at some point and then you can feel good about yourself again. And so there's calculations that have been done and essentially 
if you use all your power as coal-fired power. So most people who drive EVs, I know, try and get green power purchasing mm. agreements or they've got solar panels, but just assume the worst for the moment. Let's assume you buy your EV and you're saying, I'm feeling good about myself, but I've only got access to coal-fired power. At, on average, the approximate time frame to get you in front from an environmental perspective is about 1.6 years for an SUV, about 1.6 years for a pickup truck, about 1.4 years for a sedan. So yes, there's been more pollution created, more damage to the environment, if you want to go that far, in creating the EV in the first place. But after you've driven that for about 1.4 years for a car or 1.6 for an SUV, then you're in front because you're producing fewer greenhouse gases, even if you're using coal-fired power. Mm. Now, if you didn't use coal-fired power, I can't tell you the exact number because the research wasn't done on that component, but it's going to be better than that. It's going to be better than 1.4 years or 1.6 years. But then every year, every month, every decade you go forward, you're obviously getting further and further and further in front because you're just not producing the pollution that a petrol car would would produce. Now, and again, it's interesting, even if you use coal-fired power, you're producing pollution, but it's a more efficient form of pollution, if that makes sense. That's right. Burning petrol in a car is not the most efficient way of producing kilometres per pollution, if you like. Mm. The coal-fired power is a, I'm not saying it's great, don't get me wrong, Mm. but it's not producing pollution at the same levels as a car would do to to drive those same number of kilometres. So feel okay about yourself. Yes, not surprisingly, some people might nitpick one little component, one little stat to show that they've done the research and they're oh, in fact and telling you... blow that up that's out right. of proportion. Yep. Yeah. And so the statement's right. When someone says to you, an EV creates more pollution or does more damage to the environment than a petrol car in production. Yes, you're right. Hmm. But you need to tell the rest of the story. Yeah. What do you do when you buy a car? Is that it? Do you buy it and then park it in your garage and never drive it? course not you're buying it for a reason now this is based on those years that i've just mentioned there is based on the average number of kilometers that a person drives in a year if you're someone who drives more kilometers that payback period is actually quicker and funnily enough i remember when i had that prius that i mentioned before way back in 2005 i remember having a discussion with someone on exactly that same component because they said those priuses are no good because is it Priuses or Pri? Anyway, <laughs> the, the, those multiple cars that are called a Prius are no good because they take more energy, environmental pollution, all the rest of it to produce than a normal petrol car mm. does. And so I actually got the research, and Toyota at the time had a fact sheet out, and again they said the same thing: yes, it does, but there's not there's not a lot of batteries in a Prius. Mm. But the payback period at that time was about six months. But again, that argument has been going since well that I know of since 2005, still kicking around out there. Arm yourself with the facts, folks. That's all you've got to do. And, and these people would have us um, believe that this is where battery technology stops and that it won't be developed any further. But battery technology is improving. You know, think about where it was 10 years ago, where it was five years ago. The battery technology is set to improve as well. And so to, 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 to suggest that we've got to stop doing this and, and stop having EVs um, and try and convince people to not buy into that, it's... It's destructive in many ways. It is destructive in many ways. And also keep in mind that the petrol engine or the internal combustion engine has had a lot of development over more than a century of development. We keep refining it. We keep getting better. Formula One has been responsible for some great advances in technology Mm. in the internal combustion engine. So we've done a lot there, 
But the good old electric motor, sure, we've been progressing that over the years for other purposes, but for cars, we haven't really spent a lot of time, nowhere near the same R&D. What the report that this came out of said, in general, if things go along at the same speed they're going at now, assuming that it doesn't progress quicker like you're talking about, which I, I accept your argument, but the logic is that at least by the year 2050, if you kept going as you are now, the electric car, the production of that would actually create the same amount of pollution, same environmental damage as an internal combustion engine. So we're a fair way away from mm. being equal. But again, that's when you roll it off the assembly line. But then you start driving it and you're getting ahead every single day. So you can feel good about yourself. If you bought an EV, you are making a positive contribution to the planet. And who would have thought critical thinking would overcome? Mm-hmm. And on that note, we'll put a full stop on another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I hope you're all feeling just a little bit more enlightened on the last nine topics than perhaps you were about 50 minutes ago. And thanks for another cracking Tech Talk, Matt. Thank you very much. I love the idea about blowing bubbles under bloody big boats. And you know if I could have fit another B in that sentence, I would have. Thanks for tuning in again, folks. It's been a pleasure to bring you Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson each week. I'm James Eddy, insisting that you find a like button somewhere and hit it. I'm demanding a five-star rating and hoping like crazy that you'll leave a nice comment somewhere for someone else to pick up. I don't think that's possible.